we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Have you ever made the mistake of being improperly dressed for an event? Anybody ever done that before? There's kind of two ways you could do this. You could be overdressed for something, right? You could show up to something and, you know, you, you're decked out and turns out it's a luau, all right? Or whatever, you know, whatever the case may be, okay? So you're ready for some kind of formal event. It does not require that. I can tell you as, as a pastor, when I am invited to preach somewhere else, uh, I always go in a coat and tie, if not a suit. Because if I'm overdressed, what can I always do? Take some of that off, right? So I do it every time, and it has happened. It has happened. I've walked in on whatever the service was, revival service, or whatever the case may be. If the pastor doesn't tell me ahead of time, hey, this is a casual thing, so I'm going to show up in a coat and tie, and if I get there and nobody else is, well, not a big deal, right? Take off what I need to take off. The other way, though, is a little more awkward, isn't it? In other words, if you show up somewhere, and it turns out it is a formal event, and you're in shorts, flip-flops, and a t-shirt, how, how do you recover from that, right? I mean, how do, how do you get back from that? That is just really awkward. I remember being a groomsman in a wedding, and the wedding went fine, everybody looked great, right? We're in tuxes, bridesmaids are in their gowns, it all is, is good, that whole service gets done, we go to the reception and everybody's in the reception, groomsmen, groom, bride. We notice there are a couple of bridesmaids missing. Now, this is the reception. You know, you're not done with the wedding, right? The wedding's not just the wedding service. The reception's a part of it. There were still pictures that had to be taken and whatnot. But after a few minutes, two of those bridesmaids walked in in t-shirts and shorts into the reception. Now, I don't know if you know this, but weddings can be intense situations. Have you ever noticed that, right? There can be some drama in weddings. Well, just imagine being the bride and your bridesmaid show up to your reception in shorts and t-shirt. All right, so that was an electric atmosphere at that moment, right? When they walked in, there was all kinds of whispering and murmuring, and, and then it got weird and worse from there, all right? Because they showed up improperly dressed. There's a certain way to dress for certain events, and in particular, if you find yourself underdressed, it's going to be awkward. You know, as Paul concludes his, dis- his discussion here of the resurrection, 
as, as he's going to kind of bring everything to its natural conclusion, uh, you know, giving us some key points again, making some clarification points. He's really making one fundamental point in verses 50 through 58. You're not dressed yet for heaven. The one day we will be going there, one day our eternal existence will be that which is promised in Scripture, that place of, of heavenly rest, that, that, that new heaven and new earth, that place that has you know, the, 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 the heavenly city that came down out of heaven, what John sees at the end of Revelation. While we know all of that is one day going to be ours, the truth is you and I are not yet dressed for the occasion. We are... We're improperly dressed at this point. The way we are and the physical bodies that we possess now are in fact not appropriate attire for our eternal existence. In fact, you can tell that that Paul is kind of making a bit of of a summation. He's wrapping things up. Notice what he says in verse 50 again. He uses this phrase, and this, you know, This is the kind of thing that you want to think about as you're studying Scripture and you're reading through it. These are the kinds of things you want to note and then, you know, ask the right questions about. He begins by saying, now this I say, brethren. Already you've got to ask a question. What does he mean by this? Now this I say, brethren, and he goes on to say that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, does the this refer to that? Or does the this refer to some other this that happened before the that? Perfectly understandable, right? In other words, when he says, now this I say, does the this refer to the next phrase? Or is he referring back to what he just said? Paul is referring back to what he just said. Now you may say, what's the big deal with that? That sounds kind of confusing and odd. But you'd have to keep in mind that the previous passage, Paul has laid out this analogy of sorts... This comparison, really, where he has described our relationship to Adam and then our relationship to Jesus. Adam being the one through whom we have a natural body. We've been made in his image, in the image of Adam. Genesis 5 says this. We've also been made of the dust. In Christ, that natural work that we received through Adam that inherited the sin nature, in Christ, now that that sin nature... That has been made new, right? We have been, we've been freed from the curse that we inherited and willingly then indulged in ourselves through Adam. Now we have this better Adam, another Adam, the last Adam. We spent all, you know, a lot of time then several weeks ago working our way through this comparison that Paul makes where he says, so we came in like the one Adam, but we need to go out like the other one. We came in of the dust, of the image of Adam, but we need to go out of the image of the second man, of the better man, of Christ. We need to go out as, as one made in him, his image, as one who's now made of heavenly or spiritual stuff. And that then leads naturally then to that phrase, now this I say, which is really just a way of Paul saying, so what do I mean by all of this? What do I mean by what I just said? What, what is the significance? What am I trying to get at here? What I'm trying to get at here is you all are not yet ready for heaven. And Paul then goes on in the rest of this text, verses 50 through 58, to summarize, I think in some ways, and then to add a bit of a clarification of why this doctrine of the resurrection is so important, of, of, of essential features here, of what he's been trying to communicate all along. 
Again, wrapping this thing up by saying, all right, guys, folks in Corinth, what I'm trying to say is this. And so in giving us these verses, Paul, it's a a great way to sum it up. It's a great way to conclude this most complete chapter in the Bible on the doctrine of the resurrection, which is a critical doctrine because it is because of the resurrection from the dead that at least for Paul, Paul finds significant motivation for living the Christian life, significant motivation for enduring through tribulation, for for enduring through the difficult realities of life, for this, this, this spirit of perseverance and patience. For Paul, this is nurtured and manifested in him when he thinks deeply and carefully about the promise of the resurrection from the dead. So we're going to take a look then tonight, it's inevitably going to take us till next week, uh, to look at what are some of these final summation points that Paul makes about the resurrection from the dead. What is it that you and I need to walk away with believing when it comes to the resurrection, our resurrection in particular? Well, there's at least six. Tonight, hopefully, we'll get to three, and next week we will get to three more. So if you want to take uh, notes here, if you want to start filling in some blanks, here you go. What is it about the resurrection that you and I need to understand? Number one, the resurrection of the believer is necessary. It is necessary. In other words, this thing's got to happen. It is an absolute necessity. You and I are not yet fit for heaven. We are at this present time not properly dressed for the event. So again, this is how he says it in verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, so what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The reference there to flesh and blood, that, that, is, that is simply a general phrase that references the manner in which we live in this life now. The way in which we exist in this earth. That we are but flesh and blood. Now this doesn't only refer to what would be the, the fleshly part, meaning that which is immoral, that which is fallen, that which is stained by sin, though it certainly includes that. Paul is describing, I think, the totality of what would be our experience in this earth. Flesh and blood, the way we are now, this physical body, the body that we, that we have that is of the image of, of Adam, granted, the image of God. But if you read Genesis 5, every person since Adam and Eve, it is very specific. Genesis 5 says that, that we were made in His image. Yes, Genesis 1 talks about being made in the image of God. But as a result of the fall, now we also bear the image of our first father. This flesh and blood. This physical body that, that, that is the means by which we interact with the world around us. Though I think Paul's use of this term is as broad as you could make it. When he says flesh and blood, he is saying the stuff of this earth, you included, these are not heavenly things. Flesh and blood, as we are now, cannot inherit. In other words, we're not, we're not going to wear the way we are now. We cannot then enter into what is that final reward, that promise of eternal rest. We cannot inherit then the kingdom of God. Noting that the reference to kingdom of God, you know, that term can be used in a few ways in the New Testament in particular. Well, I guess the entire Bible, but in particular in the New Testament. Sometimes kingdom of God might refer to that general rule and reign of God, you know, where He is the God of the universe and everything belongs to Him. 
Then there is the sense in which the kingdom of God is that which comes to us by virtue of the gospel, right? The kingdom of God is now with us and among us, and so God, through the gospel, rules and reigns in our hearts, but he doesn't mean those, either of those ways here. This is talking about the end. He's talking about that final kingdom. He's talking about that kingdom when everything in the universe will then be freed from the curse, everything will then be restored to its glory and grandeur as God originally had intended for creation to be. This is what he's getting at. It's that kingdom, the ultimate final rule and reign of God. So again, Paul's, Paul's I think, rather clear and pointed point is, as we are now, flesh and blood, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Resurrection is a necessity because the condition we are in is no condition to stand before God in. Now, that doesn't mean that inwardly you are not a redeemed child of God. You, indeed, your soul, you are a new creation. The old man is gone. The new man has come. But that doesn't mean you're fit to stand before God. We are not because we still have this sin-stained, fallen, cursed flesh and blood, the stuff of this earth. It's not fit for heaven. This, by the way, is not something new with Paul. Uh, this, I think, is language that just is, is echoed out of, coming out of what was Jesus' own teaching. You might, you might recall this, John chapter 3, right, the most, perhaps one of the most famous chapters in all of the Bible. Jesus has this encounter with a guy named Nicodemus. Nicodemus being a religious leader, coming to Jesus in, at night. He doesn't want to be seen in public talking to Jesus, so it's kind of a stealth situation. Nicodemus asks him a simple question. What do I need to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And what is Jesus' response? You must be, come on good Baptist, what's the answer? You must be what? Born again. Well, Nicodemus hears that, and what is his thought about being born again? Well, you know, Nicodemus is just thinking too literally here. You mean born again? Without getting into the details, Jesus here of a whole lesson on biology, but I don't know how that's going to happen. How can I enter into my mother's womb again? How can I be born again? So obviously Nicodemus doesn't get it, so Jesus clarifies. John chapter 3, verses 5 through 6, Most assuredly I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So already you have Jesus teaching something that I think is somewhat similar to what Paul is getting at here. He's telling Nicodemus, look there, what what is of the flesh is is of the flesh, and and you, you need a much greater work. The way you are now is not fit for the kingdom of heaven. Now again, Jesus doesn't go as far as what Paul then gives us here in, in 1 Corinthians 15. But I think the basics here are still the same. The flesh is flesh. And that is the problem with us. This body is not fit for heavenly habitation. Something has to be done to it. In fact, Paul then goes on to say in that next phrase of verse 50, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Some of you may have a translation that says perishable and imperishable. Same thing. And the ideas are the same. 
Meaning that what is the problem with that which is flesh and blood? It is that which is temporary. It is that which decays. It is that which degrades. It is that which corrupts. It is that which perishes. Well, I think, you know, you read that and you think about what heaven is all about. Obviously, this body's not fit for it, right? I mean, what, how could this, which is, which is degrading and decaying and perishing and corrupting, I mean, as we speak, that's going on in all of us, right? How could this possibly be what we need to be in order to enjoy our heavenly existence? Now, my guess is for all of us here, yeah, we're all on board with that, right? I mean, you don't want to live like this forever, do you? Anybody? Anybody want the body you got for the rest of your life? Anyone? Anyone? No? Well, you shouldn't, okay? No, of course not. I don't want this. I don't want this for, the, for all of eternity. I don't think so. It's hard enough as it is. I don't want it then forever, okay? But for the Greeks, this was tough. And the Greeks had trouble understanding there was even value in the body in the first place. And so, to, to hear them say, you know, to hear Paul teach about this kind of thing, that there would be this resurrection from the dead, he, he's, I think, really making sure they understand, look, this has got to happen because, now get this, church, because God intends for your eternal existence to be a physical one. Your eternal existence will be a physical existence. What do I mean by that? You will have all the properties of being a tangible, right? And, and not to confuse terms, but fleshly being. The problem is you've got earthly flesh. You need spiritual flesh. You've got Adam's flesh. You need Christ's flesh. You've got Adam's flesh as a result of the flaw. We need Christ's flesh as the result of the resurrection. I don't know. You say, well, Pastor, that's weird. What is that? I don't know. I don't know. Doesn't say. Doesn't tell me exactly what that's going to look like, other than it gives me some hint because the Gospels do describe Jesus post-resurrection. Beyond that, I'm not really sure what it is, but I do know this. This assures us that heaven, listen, this is, and this is good news, by the way, heaven is not you and your soul like some kind of disembodied little blob of light floating around for all eternity. Did anybody get excited about that? Can you imagine what the funeral services would be like around here? Trying to encourage you, trying to encourage the body, trying to encourage somebody who's dealing with the death of a loved one and saying, isn't it great to know that one day we'll leave this body and we'll be floating balls of light for all eternity? Does that sound good to anybody? Anybody hear that and think, woo, that sounds like heaven. No, that sounds really weird, right? Somewhat depressing. God never intended for that to be the case. God always intended for human existence to be a physical existence. That physical existence, though, was broken by the fall, and that needs to be restored. So that's why the resurrection is a necessity. This flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, because that which is corrupting cannot enter into that which is incorruptible. All right, so it is a necessity. Number two, resurrection from the dead is certain. It's not only necessary, it is certain. Now, notice how Paul starts the next verse. Clearly, he wants to get our attention. He's going to use an emphatic phrase here. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Look at this. (laughs) Pay attention. 
You, you need to see this. I mean, this is what he's getting at. Behold, it, it is emphatic. It is, it is an exclamation point of sorts before the sentence even begins. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, we want to make sure we understand the word mystery. You know, the, the, this is not like Paul saying, all right, everybody, lean in close. I got a secret for you. All right, that's not what this is. He's not talking about some kind of secret knowledge that only he has, and if you get it real close and he can whisper it to you, you're going to get to know it too. The word mystery here, it's also, it's not like, you know, a good mystery movie or novel. It's not like a whodunit where you're following clues and figure out who the murderer is, okay? That's not what this is either. When that, whenever the New Testament, whenever Paul uses the word mystery, it is a very intentional theological term. He is speaking about that which at one time had been hidden or lacked clarity that has now been made known and full. The revelation of God has now been fulfilled. You could think of it like the veil being taken off. Another way to put it is like all the dots have been connected. Now, 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 the, now the, the lines have been colored in. Rather than just seeing like a vague shape or outline, now we've got clarity. Now it's been given a resolution here that you and I can see it better. Behold, I tell you a mystery. That which was type and shadow in the Old Testament, that which was alluded to, that which, which was prophesied about but not, not given clarity and fullness, now it has been made known. Now we know. Behold, I tell you that which at one time was hidden, but has now been revealed. And mystery in Paul always refers to the mystery of the gospel revealed in its fullness in Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. So for Paul, he's speaking about a very specific part of that mystery of Christ revealed, which is what it does to us. So it's been alluded to, it's been shadowed, Right there, There's been bits and pieces of it, but now it's been made known. And what has been made known? We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now, you can insert at this point the corny preacher joke about that being the slogan for the nursery. All right? We shall, all, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Okay? The corny preacher joke about the nursery. All right, so we'll move on from that. So what does he mean when he says, we shall not all sleep? Well, that's a euphemism of death. And what Paul is getting at here is not every, not every believer will die like every other believer will. Now we can understand why Paul is describing this as a mystery. I mean, because the, there, there, is, there is something that was alluded to that has now been made known in its fullness through Christ, and in particular through the full revelation of the Word of God, there will be a generation of believers alive when the dead are resurrected. And those people will not die like the rest of us. That's what he's getting at. We're not all going to sleep. And this is a big deal, because remember in Corinth there had been folks who died. And they were really concerned about the folks who died. Because they had this latent Greek philosophy stuff in the back of their head. And they're worried that at, after the grave there is no hope. That was a phrase from one of the philosophers. That's what they're worried about. And Paul, Paul is in essence giving them an implicit kind of 
uh, of encouragement. Not Some of us are going to die. Some are going to die. There'll be a generation of believers that will not. At least not like everybody else will. That's not the point. The point is the second part. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In other words, for all of us, there will be the same kind of transformation. There will be the same kind of, and the word there is the word we get, metamorphosis. It's the, it, it, there will be the same kind of dramatic uh, recreation of the human body so, so that we are then properly dressed for our heavenly habitation. Now, what does that mean? That means for the believer who has died, when the resurrection of the dead happens, that believer whose soul at death goes to the presence of the Lord, that believer then gets a new body, right? Soul is then reunited with a brand new body, fit for heaven. The generation of believers that are alive at the resurrection of the dead, I don't know how it'll happen, I don't know what it'll look like, but they will immediately be transformed. In a sense, that physical flesh and blood body that they have that's like ours now, yes, that will be discarded. So in a sense, it will die. But they themselves won't die. They, right, they themselves won't die. Like, like, in other words, there won't be a funeral for them. There won't be a grave. There, there won't be a service. There won't be a memorial. There won't be you know, a, a meal delivered to the house of the family. In other words, that kind of thing's not going to happen. But all... Those who died, those who are asleep in Jesus, but then those who are alive and remain. We'll get to 1 Thessalonians next week, which is the mirror passage here. We'll all be caught up together with them in the clouds. There'll be this this radical transformation. But what I think is really the emphasis here is not the reference to mystery, it's not the reference to sleep, and it's not the reference to changed. What Paul makes emphatic is one word here. The word shall. The word shall. This will happen. It may not happen tomorrow. You may not see it. It may be generations. And clearly from Paul's perspective, yes, we're talking generation after generation after generation, right? We're talking significant amount of time has passed since then. But we shall all be changed. Every single one of us, all all believers, will then be properly fit for this heavenly habitation. Paul says a similar thing, by the way. Philippians chapter 3, where he gives us uh, this verse you've probably heard before. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to His glorious body according to the working by which He is able even to subdue all things to Himself. So again, it's, it's just another place where Paul reiterates the same idea. This resurrection is a certainty. It is something that Jesus Christ will do. We will be transformed by Him so that that which is flesh and blood will be properly translated, recreated, and fit for heavenly habitation. So it's necessary, certain. Number three, it is immediate. It is immediate. 
You could also use the word instantaneous. Because he's still, he's still dealing with this idea, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. And notice the next phrase in verse 52. He kind of gives the, how this will happen. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. Trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible. And again, notice that phrase, we shall be changed. The two phrases I want you to note in particular, those two phrases, in a moment, and then in the twinkling of an eye. The word moment there is the, is the Greek word atomos, which is our word for atom. And the Greeks use this word to describe the smallest possible quantity of something. In fact, they would use this term to describe something that is so small, so minute, so minuscule, that it cannot even be divided. Like you can't even get down to it to split the thing in half. That's how small this is. So, when he's describing it here in terms of when will this change happen? When, when, we may not all die, but we'll all be changed. And when will it happen? It'll happen in a, in a moment. Then he uses that second phrase, twinkling of an eye. <clears throat> we have a similar phrase, right? We talk about in the blink of an eye. Except a blink, you ready for this? A blink is longer than a twinkle. You think, preacher, you're crazy. It's been too cold. What's, you've, your brain's frozen. That doesn't make any sense. He's just being poetic here, right? Well, no, for one, me just saying the word blink I can, it makes everybody blink more. I can see it, all right? You don't know it, but I can, all right? So it's just natural. It's a natural thing, okay? Blink. You do, I don't know, you do like uh, 20 of them. I don't know. You do every minute. I forgot what it is. But a twinkle, that's a, that's a real thing. A twinkle, that is a term that describes what happens when light reflects off of the eye and it gives just this momentary twinkle. This momentary little flash. Scientists can measure this because light goes at what speed? Speed of light. All right, okay, all right, good. Got a bunch of physicists in here, good. Speed of light. So they can measure a twinkle. I think it's there in your notes. They can measure a twinkle. A twinkle lasts... One billionth of a second. One billionth of a second. Isn't it fascinating that you got a phrase that was used 2,000 years ago that scientists have to come along and say, oh yeah, that, yeah, okay, this is what that means. Twinkle is, is a billionth of a second. In other words, it, it perfectly lines up with what he's trying to say here. He's saying this thing is going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, faster than you can see. It's language that says this is instantaneous. It's in the moment. You won't even see it happening. So this is not like a transformation of, say, a caterpillar to a butterfly. That takes time, right? In fact, you can, you can do that. You can catch a caterpillar. You can put it in a jar. Put some leaves in there and you, you, we can watch it happen, right? But that doesn't happen overnight. There's very set stages of going from this to this to this to this. The other thing this means 
And forgive me for putting this image in your head, all right? Another thing this means is if there's somebody standing at a cemetery and the resurrection of the dead happens, that doesn't mean that bodies are going to come shooting up out of the graves, as awesome as that might be to see, right? But that's not what it's, that, that would be incredible. All of a sudden to see these explosions coming up out of the graves. Wouldn't that be something if you were standing there and that's the way it happened? But that's not the way it happens. It doesn't happen like that. It happens so quickly you don't even know that what happened. It's instantaneous, faster than the eye can see, unobservable to the naked eye. That's what he means here. Whatever transformation this is, whatever that looks like, however that happens, whatever the process is behind it, it is God's all-glorious power whereby he immediately, instantaneously transforms us whether we are a soul that is given a new body or those who are yet still alive and remain and are transformed into that body which is fit for now heaven, whichever case it is, all will be changed and in the same kind of way, meaning given the same kind of heavenly body, that will happen in a blink of an eye, a split second, a twinkle, right? In a moment, that which is so fast, it cannot even be observed. Now here's what I love about this language. Because to me, this really speaks to the power of God and to the power of the gospel to reverse the curse. In particular, the curse of death. I mean, in many ways, that's what Paul's getting at in this text, right? That's a big deal here, and we'll we'll end up seeing that next week. That part of what Paul does, you know, Paul, part of what the resurrection does is it gives us victory over death. So let me ask you a question. How long does it take for someone to die? I know you're thinking, great, glad I came to Wednesday night, right? This is great. You're going to leave me with this question. How long does it take somebody to die? Now, some of you may be thinking, well, I know some people die really quickly. There are instantaneous kinds of deaths, right? People who might die in some kind of freak accident of some kind, or maybe they were in warfare, maybe there was something that, you know, the death was really quick, maybe they had some kind of fast uh, acting kind of disease. Uh, others may say, well, I mean, I had, a, I had a friend or a family member or a father, mother, or brother, whatever, who died. I mean, it took years and years and years, and they, uh, they were in, in and out of hospitals, and they had, uh, you know, home health, or they were in a nursing home, and it took a long time for them to die. I know that you may think, well, I don't know, that, can you really... Can you really answer the question, how long does it take for somebody to die? There is one answer. There is one answer to that question. How long does it take somebody to die? It takes a lifetime. Give that a second. It takes your entire life to die. I know this sounds morbid, but I promise you I'm getting to a payoff here, okay? Because everybody I've ever heard or read or listened to says the human body is dying as soon as it's born. Now granted that you know, skin cells die and more come, but nonetheless, your body, it's not like you have this, you're born, and then you have more and more life, more life, more life, more life. You hit a peak, whatever the peak may be, all right? I feel like I passed my long time ago. All right, so whatever that peak may be, and then it's all downhill, right? It's life, 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 peak, plateau, then death, 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 death. That is not what it is. 
That's not what it is. Granted, the human body grows, right? You're not full grown when you're born, so there is growth, there is development. But from the moment you're born, it starts here. From the moment you're born, it is death, 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 death. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Outwardly, we are wasting away. So again, think about this. In essence, it's going to take a lifetime to die. However long that life is, that's how long it's going to take me to die. But that's coming. That is the curse. That is the curse. The curse that is pronounced upon us, being in flesh and blood, the day that you eat of the tree of the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall surely die. Our whole lives are approaching death. It takes a whole lifetime to do it. How long does it take God to the power of the gospel to reverse the curse of death that takes a lifetime to come to fulfillment in you, takes a lifetime for you to die? How long does it take God to reverse that curse? A moment. Twinkling of an eye. Something so fast that you can't even see it. God's ability through the gospel to so defeat death Death that will take time over, over the course of a lifetime to happen. How does God recover from that? How does God restore you? Does it then take another lifetime? Does God give you a bit here and a bit there? Is it like that, that caterpillar that then goes into the cocoon, that then does its thing, and after a certain amount of time comes out? No, it is in an instant. It is in a moment. Something unobservable to the human eye. This is how profound and powerful is the gospel. God is able to reverse the curse, a curse that takes a lifetime to be brought to bear on your life. God is able to reverse that curse in an instant. Now, next week, we'll get to that next phrase. Because the next phrase may be the one, really, that everybody here just cares about. When is this going to happen? I do have an answer for that. Because Paul says, at the last trumpet... (laughs) That's when it will happen. Is that good enough? No? Maybe? All right. Well, next week. Okay. Next week, we'll get more into that. What does that mean? I'll provide you with some options. It may surprise you, but there are different ideas of what that means. All right? So when the resurrection will happen. But really, even before we get to that, I think what really does matter is to know that when, when Paul, again, when he says this is immediate, instantaneous, uh, it doesn't mean it's going to happen immediately. In other words, this is a future event. And for sure, that is what the last trumpet is pointing us to. That this is an event that occurs at what we call the end of time. However you could conceive of that, this is an event that occurs then. So next week, we'll jump back into it and uh, finish out Paul's instruction here about the doctrine of the resurrection. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you again for gathering us here tonight. Thank you for your goodness toward us. We thank you for the promise of the gospel. We thank you for the hope of the resurrection. And to know that through the gospel... All of the curse of death and of sin is reversed, that in in Christ, that curse no longer has the final say in our lives. We thank you, God, in knowing that you have a work plan for us where you will take this flesh and blood, this corruptible, this perishable, this mortal, and you will recreate, you will reclothe us with that which is fit for a heavenly habitation. God, I thank you for these who've come out tonight. I thank you for their 
willingness to be a part of this time of prayer and study in your word. I pray that you would bless them and guide each and every one of us, that you would give us wisdom, wisdom beyond that which might come naturally to us, that we might live in faith and obedience to you. Use us for your glory and gather your people back together again, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.